2: Reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door
1: with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company,
0: Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. And on today's show, I'm joined by Shereen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, a TEDx speaker, in fact, sports activist, and our favorite foodie, she's in Toronto, and Lindsay Gibbs, reporter, author, and the brilliant mind behind the gender and sports newsletter, PowerPlays. Sign up at powerplays.news. Before we dive into our content, we want to thank our patrons whose support of this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign, Make Burn It All Down, possible. Thank you. If you'd like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burn it all down. For as little as $2 per month, you can access exclusives like extra Patreon-only segments or our monthly behind-the-scenes vlog. On today's show, we're going to talk about running, abuse, Nike, and gender, among other things, after this week's powerful New York Times op-ed by runner Mary Kane. Then I interview a favorite of the show, and as you'll hear, a patron, journalist Diana Moscovitz, who was at Deadspin until GeoMedia tanked the site. We talk about Diana's career at Deadspin and how it all ended. And a note, this is a severely condensed version of our chat. The full-length interview will be posted later this week on our Patreon. Finally, we're going to dive into something more positive, the Matildas, the Australian women's soccer team getting their equal due. We'll cap off today's show by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout outs to women who deserve shout outs, and telling you what is good in our world. But first, we had yet another White House visit by a sports (laughs) team this week, and I think it's a fair assessment to say it wasn't great. So (laughs) the Nationals (laughs) visited Trump, and it was gross. I'm not even sure where to begin with this. I thought Clinton Yates did a good write-up at the Undefeated, and one of the things that he noted was how the Nats have red hats, and so does Trump. And so, like, it just kind of looked like a big Trump rally. Like, just even that basic fact is so, ugh. What did you guys think about what you saw? I'm mad at Kurt Suzuki. I'm just gonna
3: start yeah, the there. Like I just he's like Who had a Titanic
1: moment with the president? Yes. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and he's
1: basically <laughs> oh who had an God. I'm a king of the world, like
3: and he, and <laughs> from Clinton's art like piece, he's like quotes Suzuki saying, Everybody makes everything political. It was about our team winning <laughs> the World Series. What you're at the fucking White House. Like, what do you mean it's not political? What was he wearing? He I was wearing what was
0: Kurt Suzuki wearing He on his was wearing hat? a
3: MAGA hat. Yeah, ride MAGA it is
0: political, Kurt. I I just and I <laughs> yes the, the thing is and then Trump hugged him from behind while ugh. Suzuki threw his arms out wide as gross. Lindsay was saying gross. it's gross gross. But yeah. the thing is here is that and and, and like, cupped him and a and, little and bit. gross.
3: <laughs> oh my God! So Optics I do not need. I wanted to just sort <laughs> of
1: I can't believe you just said cupped. <laughs> I'm
0: sorry, but like, I okay, mean, I guess for the breast, <laughs> right like in the okay.
3: breast area. Like, I, so, okay. Oh. Stream. Sorry. Stream, sorry. <laughs> no, I wanted to just draw attention to something that our friends Saucy Rockets, who have this great hockey podcast, actually pointed out, and they are East Asian of descent, and talked about that confliction with Kurt Suzuki being of Asian descent from Hawaii, and then you know, so just talked about how sad it was that this was the case. And then, you know, this is something in communities of immigrant descent that we see, that there's this, you get that professional economic stability, and then you sort of dismiss and ignore charges, of charges issues and challenges of those communities. And it's very disheartening to see because those people are used as Shields from white supremacists, and they uphold yeah. white supremacy. Literally, and yeah. just to say, well, this guy thought it was okay, and he's a person in colors. So there you go. Like, doesn't work like that. So,
0: Ugh. Lindsay, as a resident D.C.er, is that how we, I don't even know what we call D.C. people you know, D.C.ers, <laughs> Washington? Is what I'm going with right DC-ers, now? D.C.ers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't want to have this conversation. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you know, you, it was funny you were saying that about the hats because it's an ongoing. Joke, I guess, is that so you can't you can't pick thing, them out of a
0: crowd. That you can't like mean, walking, when you're walking, walking around DC, you see all
1: these <laughs> red hats, and you don't know if it's like a Nats fan or Trump. You know, a Trump fan, and of course, as they were going through their, you know, their playoff and World Series run, I kept seeing more and more red hats in D.C., which you don't see many of them in D.C., actually, because you don't see many MAGA hats in D.C., because uh, D.C. is very, very uh, anti-Trump. And so it's been, you know, the hat thing is real. But I think that it's just disappointing. Like, the Nats team had so much goodwill. that The fans had booed Trump when he showed up at the game, And just for them to so brazenly embrace this moment and cozy up to power in this way was disgusting. And I just want to give a shout out to Sean Doolittle and the other Nats who didn't go because grateful for especially Doolittle, who's very thoughtful in the stand that he took
0: yeah I that's what I was gonna say too as I want there was a handful of them and I just want to name some of them here to sort of balance like Anthony Rendon Javi Guerra Joe Ross Wander Suero Michael A. Taylor Victor Robles Sean Doolittle Trace Barrera were some of them and of course Doolittle for how vocal he was about the choice that he made okay well now that we've started on a high note (laughs) let's move on to the show All right, Lindsay, do you want to get us started on Mary Kane, Nike's Oregon Project and Abuse in Sport?
1: Whew, sure. Um Yeah, had, I know. Uh yeah. A little light uh, subject for this morning. So Mary Kane was a seemed to be a once in a generation running talent, just smashing records when she was a teenager. And um when she was seventeen, decided to go st- go pro, and move to Oregon to work with Nike's Oregon Project, which is one of the you know, most prominent running training groups in the world. Uh, and earlier this week in the New York Times, Mary Kane came forward with an op-ed titled, I was the fastest girl in America until I joined Na- Nike. This was a really devastating look at how her career was destroyed by Nike's Oregon Project, which was not just a male-dominated system, but as she says in the piece, it was a system created by men for men. One of the quotes from the video says, I joined Nike because I wanted to be the best female athlete ever. Instead, I was emotionally and physically abused by a system designed by coach Alberto Salazar and endorsed by Nike. When she first arrived at Nike's Oregon Project, Salazar and his team, completely full of men, told her that in order to be faster, she had to get thinner and thinner and thinner. The program didn't have a certified sports psychologist. It didn't have a certified nutritionist. It just had these men picking an arbitrary number and telling her that if she didn't meet that on the scale, she was a failure. She deprived herself of nutrients so much in order to try and hit that number on the scale that she didn't have her period for three years. Her bones became brittle due to a lack of estrogen, and she broke five bones. She had suicidal thoughts. She openly cut herself, but nobody stepped in to help. And Salazar would just continue to berate her in public about her poor performances and weight. And the quote I'll think about for a while is her saying, I wasn't even trying to make the Olympics anymore. I was just trying to survive. So this is um, what this Oregon project did to a generational female athlete. And it's been really harrowing to read other female runners come forward with their stories that are very similar. And we can get in a little bit. I did a little bit of um, stuff about like behind the scenes and how this story came to be that I want to touch on in a minute. But I think first, let's just start. Like what, what did you guys think about this story when it came out? What was, what was your reaction?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very sad. And I think it's interesting that Nike chose, or sorry, oh my goodness. The New York Times chose to do a video op-ed because you really, you hear her voice and you see her saying these things. Uh, One of the things that really struck me about this is how arbitrary it is. I think that's a word that she even uses, arbitrary weight. They're just kind of guessing and they ruin her life over this. I also kept thinking about the idea of what is healthy in sport and how we often are looking at elite athletes and the people who coach them as experts on health and I don't feel like most elite athletes are probably healthy in the way that we're imagining that word defining that word Um, that they do all kinds of terrible things to their bodies in order to be the best at the thing that they do and how all of that gets used then against athletes and so in this case in this abusive system Run by Salazar. I mean, this was obviously used against Kane in a really terrible way. This, I, I don't know, it just, I don't have a good formulated thought there, but it's something I keep coming back to. Shereen?
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I read was that when I felt this, I was was in tears, actually, when I saw the video was just that it reminded me of what we talked about on the show before we've talked about this but about Lindsay Horan being you know sort of criticized so fiercely when she was in France at PSG Paris Saint-Germain she was playing there and how she was criticized for her body weight and I think the thing that's really important for men to understand is women's bodies don't always look the same And what is required for that athlete is such an individual thing. I was really struck while reading all this that they didn't have holistic nutritionists or nutritionists or dietitians working with them. Like how is this top level programming if you don't have these things that literally are needed? Like this is just an aside, but about 10 years ago, I got a trainer to help me in the gym. And she, by training was a holistic nutritionist and completely understood what I needed because what I needed wasn't the same as the next person she was working with. Like this is so imperative. And I'm sitting here, they're expected to compete at elite levels, but not given the support. So like the system and this particular program had so many holes in it that it was just appalling to me. And I thought about her psychological torture of what she endured and being isolated from her family. And I was so happy later in the piece where she explained that she told her parents who had no idea and were like, get on the first flight home, like basically get the fuck out of there. And how she was isolated from them and the shame that's riddled with this, being berated in public. It's literally enduring torture and and abuse. And it was, I just, and she was so young, but it just was so hard for me to, and even if she wasn't young, like the response and, and I, you know, we posted this as we're prepping for this, Amy Yoder Begley replied to Mary Kane and said, you know, and I'll quote this, this is a tweet. After placing six on the 10,000 meter at the, Two thousand eleven USATF championships, I was kicked out of the Oregon project. I was told that it was too fat and quote, had the biggest butt on the starting line, end quote. And then she says, This brings back those painful memories back. Like how how is this acceptable? How is this okay? It it just put such a hole in my heart in a place that and how many of these happen all over sports in different places? Like how many young people are being subject to this type of abuse?
0: Yeah. And I did want to mention there was a runner her named Kara Goucher. She was a marathoner in Team USA in London in 2012. She actually blew the whistle back in 2011. So like these things are longstanding, the knowledge about what was going on. I mean, she went to the FBI and the USADA way back then. So and she was someone had already actually whistleblown at that point. So people knew that, that this was going on. and Nike tried to respond. Their response was like to play dumb to act like, well, Mary never told us any of this. So this is brand new to us. And it wasn't brand new to anyone that was close is what it, it looks like from from everything we know. Lindsay, you mentioned that you did I think it was Fridays power plays, again, power news, sign up everybody. And you talked to the author of the New York Times or the woman behind the New York Times op ed of Mary Kane. Can you tell us a little bit about behind the scenes?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that really struck me when I was watching this was it did seem like this story was right in front of everyone's face. Like this was a very, very prominent runner. Right. I mean, I know like, you know, the running community can be in obscurity, but Mary Kane was not. Right. And then she joined the kind of most covered, most well-known in the United States running program, and then disappeared, right? And then didn't have any of the results to like back it up. And I kind of just kept thinking about how why why are we just hearing about this now and why, you know, it's hmm. yeah. that that really stuck with me, so I reached out to Lindsay Kraus, who is a New York Times journalist who I've got to say she works for the New York Times opinion desk, but she she actually works like she's a producer for their Op-ed docs series. So this isn't even like her job, um, but she's an avid runner, and I mean a phenomenal marathoner. I think she's close to like a three-hour marathon. Like I can't even. Anyways, go Lindsay, go Lindsay. But I I noticed her name because she had been the kind of author and producer behind the the series that the New York Times did earlier this year on maternity rights in running. So, when Allison Felix came forward and talked about how Nike's contract was so horrible for pregnancy and for women, that was that was Lindsay's work as well. So, I reached out to her and it was just, it was so powerful to hear her talk because I think it was just such a big lesson on why it's important to have diversity in media. I mean, it just, I, it, it, that I, and that sounds oversimplifying things, but, you know, she's, you know, female runner herself who works in sports journalism. And she kept listening to these interviews with uh, Alicia Montano and, you know, Alison Felix. And she said she would hear what she called coded words for when they would talk about their comebacks or pregnancy that alluded to the fact that Nike wasn't very supportive, but didn't. They didn't come right out and say it, but it was like they were almost asking for someone to ask the question. And so she did it and she called up um Alicia Montano, who, you know, is the woman who we would all see. She competed while eight months pregnant and was lifted up as like this hero of like, you know, what the female body is capable of. But of course there's much more to that story and, and Lindsay's, Reporting and producing found out that the reason she was doing that was because she was so afraid she was going to lose sponsors, right? It was for her contracts. It wasn't just to inspire people, you know, that there was a real, real ugliness behind that powerful image. So that came out. And after Alicia's piece came out, Allison Felix decided to come forward with her story. And Lindsay told me that Allison had actually been like an anonymous source on her piece on Alicia. And then once that got a good reception, Allison came forward and then it was Mary Kane seeing Allison's story that made Mary Kane reach out to Lindsay to come forward. And so it just becomes this like domino effect. And it all started because one woman, you know, reporter asked a question that was right in front of the faces of everybody, but nobody else thought to ask. And one of the most powerful quotes, and I know Jess, you were uh, bringing this up because it this this impacts a lot of our work, but I would just want to read you this quote from Lindsay Krauss who said, I think what's really important to note about all of these stories is that nothing is illegal. Nothing is actually fundamentally wrong. No one's breaking any rules because the rules are set up to not support the women that they are hurting. So if you're just looking You know, as I was talking with her and it's like, if you're just looking for what's illegal, you're going to miss the fact that these systems are set up (laughs) to uh, punish women.
0: Yeah, that's such a good
3: point. Shereen? That's what struck me, Linz, in your newsletter, the one that struck me the most, that it was the fucking systems that are built up this way. And I just really wanted to uh, take a second to say, just to piggyback off what you were saying about Lindsay Kraus. I saw people thanking her and saying, thank you for creating this place to talk about this, where it's virtually non-existent in, in this field, in this area of sport. And I that really stuck with me, that the work that women in non-binary do that people of color do in sports media. And I know I harp on this always, and I will always harp on this, that that's why these, these people are needed to do this work because like, no, like traditional sports media mainstream doesn't do it. So, you know, hijab tip to Lindsay Kraus because like, that was so poignant.
0: The last thing I want to talk about was there's one other abuse dynamic that I just wanted to bring out. So Nike responded To Kane's video. And one of the things that they chose to say in that response was that Mary Kane had reached out to try to join back the Oregon Project as late as April of this year, which I thought was a, like when I first saw it, I thought that was a really mean point to make. And Mary took to Twitter and she did a thread uh, responding directly to that one sentence in the Nike. Uh, statement and she said quote I wanted closure I wanted an apology for never helping me when I was cutting and in my own sad never fully healed heart wanted Alberto Salazar to still take me back I still loved him because when we let people emotionally break us we crave more than anything their very approval she goes on in the thread to say that you know he wasn't very receptive to her and then when the USADA report came out it sort of finally revealed to her that this was not her, that there was something else going on that was bigger than her, and that the system itself was not okay. And I just wanted to point out how shitty it is for victims to have to answer for the choices they make in these abusive systems that give them no good choices, that make all of their choices look bad. And that Nike chose in this moment to pick on that particular point in order to try to continue to cover up a thing that everyone has known about (laughs) for almost a decade. I just thought that that was, I just wanted to draw attention to it because that was terrible. Lindsay, want to finish this out here? Yeah. I mean, that was,
1: it was disgusting. It was a victim blaming statement and it showed that Nike who, as we've discussed, likes to make these empowering commercials about female athletes behind the scenes is not practicing what they preach it's important to note that the Nike Oregon project has been kind of dismantled due to anti-doping allegations and in um you know doping bans and Salazar has been suspended for 4 years but none of this has to do with Mary Kane's story which wasn't about the doping violations it's about the um the abuse and you know Mary Kane in the video she looked at the camera and she said a hey, I'm really afraid that what they're going to do is they're just going to basically keep all of Salazar's, you know, cohorts in place, rebrand this a little bit and bring it back without any systemic changes. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, everything needs to change. And she said, we need more women in power they're not acknowledging that this is a system the systemic crisis in women's sports and at nike in which young girls' bodies are being ruined by an emotionally and physically abusive system that needs to change and lindsay krauss when i spoke to her she said about what needs to change i think the, this is lindsay krauss's quote i think the people charged with telling our stories need to change Because they're the ones that are shaping national dynamics and the national dialogue. I was a history major in college, and one of the best lessons they taught you is that so much of history is subjective. You're told what was important by the people who decided it was important. I think sports, or anything in journalism,
0: is exactly the same way. (laughs) Up next, my interview with journalist Diana Moskowitz. And a reminder, this is just one part of our longer chat. The full interview will be up later this week via our Patreon. Hello, flamethrowers. Jessica here. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by the one and only one of my journalism heroes, Diana Moskowitz, whose last journalism home was Deadspin rest in peace, where she spent, I believe, five years editing and writing incisive and necessary investigative and cultural commentary pieces about sports. Thanks for being here, Diana.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. Also, as a Patreon, I feel like I have to say, please be a Patreon. I am, so you have (laughs) no one has any excuses if I am. Just saying, listeners,
0: you can do it for as little as a dollar a month, I believe. You should do it. Yes. Listen to Diana Moskowitz. We're so we're so happy you're here. So I wanna start where I like to start, which is at your beginning before jumping into the story at hand. So what was your background in journalism before you actually went to Deadspin?
2: Yeah, so my background in journalism is Nothing like Deadspin. I I always tell people I could not have envisioned working at Deadspin when I graduated college because it did not even Hmm. exist. I graduated in 2003, University of Florida and thought I was going to do like what all my professors said you were supposed to do. You got a job at a little newspaper and then you got a job at a medium newspaper. And then if you were one of the really, really lucky ones, you got a job, you know, at one of the biggest newspapers, right? Mm Yeah. I thought that's what I was going to do. That's what they all told me you were supposed to do. So I, when I graduated, I got a job at the newspapers that are still there, although the name has since changed because they... We're sold, as happens in this industry. Of course. Uh, so at the time, <laughs> it was Scripps Treasure Coast Newspapers. Um, I was covering the St. Lucie hmm. County Commission. For the sports people out there, you probably know Port St. Lucie. It's where the Mets do spring training. A little further north is Bureau okay. Beach, where the Dodgers had spring training. So that that neck of the woods. Yeah. I was there for about a year. Wrote a lot about growth, development, two Hurricanes hit that area. It was 2004, Hurricane Francis, okay. Hurricane Jean. Then again, just doing what you're supposed to do, went to the Miami Herald. I love that paper. I grew up in South Florida. When I got there, I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life there because why wouldn't you? It was the Miami Herald. Yeah. We ended up being there for about seven and a half years, five covering Broward County. Another like about two, two and a half down in Miami Dade, mostly doing police reporting, courts, crime, lots of lots of stories about the worst days of people's lives. As mm. is kind of the best way I could put it. I spoke to mm. um, more more mothers in mourning than um, than probably a person should. Frankly, I look back and I wonder about my mental health sometimes. But for mm. being honest. But yes, yeah, so I did that. And then I got really burned out. The Herald had been bought by McClatchy, layoff after layoff after layoff. And I started applying for journalism jobs again. And two places actually got back to me. One was LA Weekly uh, under oh. its previous ownership. <laughs> this was back Also That's in recipe,
0: right? Isn't it? Gone? Right. Oh- <laughs> yeah, <geez.
2: laughs> so um, they offered me a freelance assignment, but I couldn't do it at the time because it conflicted with some tutoring I was doing uh, with students. And then um NFL Media. Shout out to my old boss, Justin oh, Hathaway. Right. He, he took right. a flyer on me. That. Yeah, and yeah. I, I always have to shout out Justin Hathaway. And he swears he's like, it was so obvious I should have hired you. But I, you know, I think he took a flyer on me. I was I had a very different background than most people at NFL Media, you know.
0: And so what were you doing? What did you do at NFL Media?
2: My official title was I was an online producer, basically. So our job was, there are folks who are writing the copy, and our job was to grab it and to copy edit it, to punch up the headline, make it more SEO friendly, add art, add video. And then it would go up at NFL.com. Yes. It also morphed a little bit because I I realized that, I ended up doing some things that not necessarily all the other online producers would do because of my background. So I did help out a lot with the reporting aspect because I've, I found out later part of the reason I got brought on was when players got in trouble or even when owners got in trouble. I was there when Joe got arrested.
0: Mm.
2: They're in a really tough spot because they are essentially reporting on themselves, right? right? Right. And so they have to be very careful and very diligent. And because of my background with doing police reporting, I really knew how to. How do you do that type of reporting okay. You know, and do it in a way where, yeah, it's just it's going to be buttoned up in a certain way.
0: And so then when did you make the jump to Deadspin and how did you end up there?
2: I had to leave NFL media because I was a seasonal employee. Um, okay. And if I'd stayed any longer, my understanding was they would have to give me health insurance. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>
2: I know I, I always tell people after working there that this this kind of NFL mentality of treating people like they were disposable it wasn't just for the players yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, it permeates that institution for sure, and so I'd actually applied for a full- time job there didn't get it, they said I could come back as a seasonal employee again, um, but some time had to pass because again, otherwise mm-hmm. Obamacare health insurance, so I was at home, I was unemployed and doing what. As I like to say, every good unemployed journalist does, which is read Romanesco. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a website where all the journalism news was. And someone at the time, I don't remember who, but it was a woman and she ran a Tumblr. And every, I believe it was every day or maybe every other day, she would call out a news organization that did not have any women on its masthead. This kept her very busy, as you can imagine. Uh Yeah,
0: sure.
2: Right. And so one day she did Deadspin. And that it got written up somewhere. um, And then that link made it to Romanesco and I'm reading it. And, you know, and I just got so mad because they're giving all their reasons, quote unquote, why. And I just remember thinking, well, why haven't you asked me? <laughs> Where's my invitation? Yeah. Where's my tryout, Tommy Crags? Yeah. And um, I got really mad. I was really upset with them because I had actually tried to pitch them at one point. I was I was really, really mad. And so I just wrote an email and I still remember the subject line. It was female writer editor over here. Exclamation point. <laughs> I, I I really couldn't chase of what my qualifications were. Yeah. <laughs> but, I still have it. Oh, I pull it up probably once or twice a year because people think I'm getting it. I was like, oh no, I knew what my qualifications were. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. So that's how you got
2: the job there? Yeah. And then... Wow. And you know, it's funny because on the one hand, I was so bad at Tommy Crags, but then to Tommy Crags' credit, he receives this email from me, which is, shall we say, bold. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, mean, I just attached my resume. I'm like, here's everything I can do. This is why you should hire me. Resume attached. And to his credit, he got back to me and he was just like, okay, yeah, let's talk. He asked me to write a memo about deadspin. He was like, this will be confidential. Just read the site. Tell me what you think we're doing great. Tell me what you think we're bad at can tell me huh. what you you think we should be doing so I did from there yeah we talked and he had me do a couple this was back when just about everyone did these for Gawker Media I did a tryout I did sure. I think I did a Sunday shift and then I did a night shift and then basically they had just had me around for a month like just a month-long trial Monday through Friday
0: and at the end you passed basically <laughs> I I did I passed so you come in you're the only woman as you just said that's how you got in the door and deadspin is so famous one of the things that people have been lamenting as part of the death of deadspin is the voice that is going to be lost right and so you not only came into this atmosphere or this environment where you're the only woman in sort of a broey space but also like adopting the voice of deadspin like what was that transition like for you well you know, in
2: some ways I got lucky and that I actually it's kind of a weird thing. I was the only woman who was like quote unquote on full time staff, but okay. there was another woman there. Okay. Um, Julie Kerr, because she was doing Ask a Clean Person and I I always have to shout her out because in a way she was like my life raft, honestly. Sure. Because sometimes you just want to talk about your bra. Yeah, yes. (laughs) She definitely helped me out at first. And I just remember thinking, okay, I have to like become her friend because like (laughs) we have to form an alliance somehow, you know. And also you're so cool. And she had a book coming out and I just thought she was like the coolest person, you know, Um, and she's also turned out to be an amazing friend. Um, So that was really, really helpful. But it, it was still, I mean, again, we're talking about like, too. <laughs> not, yeah, not exactly. A, you know, and that means at any given moment, like either one of us could be like the only woman on Slack, or if both of us are busy with other things. There's like no women there, you know? Um, yeah, you know, what's funny? Is it? So when I got hired, Tommy Craggs and Tim Marchman, they only really gave me one mandate. And uh, Well, first of all, it was funny because I was very self-conscious about the fact that I, I was clearly not able to blog as much or as fast as you know Barry and Sammer and Tom Lay. And very sure. early on, Tommy Craggs told me, he was like, don't try to keep up with them. That's a fool's errand. He's like, you're never going to be able to. <laughs> but he was like, but also he's like, that's not why I hired you because that's not what you're going to be best at. He All mm-hmm. he wanted for me was he was like, do every single FOIA request. Like, find them. Think of them. If someone else hmm. thought of one, they'd actually just give it to me to do. I basically did, like, most of the site's FOIA requests for probably a, hmm. a about like a year or two. Okay. Because... They really wanted to break news, but also realize that you know you not have budget and resources like the New York Times or the Washington Post. I always called them like the low-hanging fruit of like most sports reporters weren't doing nearly the FOIA requests that they probably should be doing because they don't, mm-hmm. they aren't trained to think in that way. I Maybe mean, they don't have the time. You know, they still have to write all those gamers. So it was kind of low-hanging fruit, you know, to break news on the site, and hmm. so that was okay. my big mission okay. was just FOIA everything. Like from the beginning, I was just doing blogs that I thought were blogs and I don't know how else to explain it except they just so clearly seemed like news to me, you know, where it's like, oh, Mm -hmm. duh, this is a blog, Mm -hmm. duh, 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 duh. And I I had, you know, and then I would usually reach out to someone else to be like, hey, is there a way to do this and just to make sure it fits with like the dead spin tone of things? They would say, oh "Oh, yeah, of course. So yeah, like to their credit, no one ever told me that's not a dead spin blog, but And so that's the thing. I think people think I had this plan, and I was just, no, I think these are blogs that are worth doing and I'm just going to do them. And and again, to the credit
0: of the leadership there, no one told me to stop. Let's talk about the end because that's probably what a lot of people are here for. So one of the things about the end of Deadspin, as we know it, you turned in your two weeks notice to Deadspin before everything actually blew up. And so why did you decide even before... Barry got fired and, and sort of all the stuff that happened after that. Why did you decide to leave?
2: Because things were just getting so bad, honestly. Like I you really, could tell,
0: like you were wall. Yeah,
2: yeah, like the writing was on the wall. And I think that was something that, you know, we're also like talking about because- and, and I think that's come out in the press coverage, which is is good, because you worry that people were going to see what happened and just be like, oh, they're just being spoiled brats. But I think people have been perceptive
0: enough and they realize like, no, things were getting bad for a while. So one of the things that happened was you gave your two weeks notice before all this started. So you ended up, you were the last one in the end. You you still had the keys <laughs> to the place on the final Friday, whereas everyone else had quit and they they were gone. And so... The last bit of real stuff on Deadspin was you in the end. What was that last day like for you? So on
2: Friday, I just woke up, just started doing it. At what
0: point did you figure out that they were not going to let you? I mean, you were worried, it looked like, that they were going to remove your access.
2: At first, I thought I had all day because I was just like, la, 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 la. They hadn't been messing with anyone's blogs on wednesday or thursday and even though there's clearly blogs from wednesday and thursday that if you read them it's people talking about and not veiled like what's going yes. on so i thought i'd be yeah. fine and then about i started actually again shout out to julie care who like let me crash with her at the last minute because like i started out deadspin becoming her friend and here she is at the end like putting a roof over my head <laughs> So I started at her place and then she had work to do. So I just went to like a Starbucks that was down the corner and like, la, 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 you know, <laughs> do, 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 And then I saw, this is my word that I've been using for it, uh, which is, I mean, they've been calling it like the scab content, which is someone who is, and I could right. see that in the system. And I was like, right. oh no, like I, uh, it was like, shoot. And so then I felt like I had to get things up a lot faster because there's no point of like having this and then, you know having that like that uh, sammer pointed out where he was like you've got to do it all now because otherwise it's not gonna work i was like shoot that's right so i just started going a lot faster especially after i published the mckenna blog that was the one where i thought i am not long for this Kinja world <laughs> that was definitely one where I yeah. thought the others are kind of funny but kind of like are you really gonna get that mad about a bear friday for the road but when i mckenna i thought i am not right, long for this right. world and i could see that coming and so i um yeah, they just cut my Kinja access. Okay. I just
0: closed wow. my laptop and went for a walk. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> so, one day someone's going to write a book about this moment in journalism, sports journalism, maybe about Deadspin in particular. I don't know. But, like, where do you see, like, where does Deadspin fit in this, in sports media or journalism in general? Like, what was its role that it played, do you think, when we were like looking back on it?
2: You know, I feel like. I was always a huge believer in that tagline. It's funny how true and perfect it ended up being, even if it was probably written with very little thought, which was you know, sports news without access, favor, or discretion. You know, I always, to me, I yeah. thought that was the secret sauce. Like I remember every time if I had a big story, people would ask me about this, you know, blowback and I was like, what blowback? What are the cowboys gonna do? Take away my non existent cowboy press credentials <laughs> like Yeah. No. Yes. Like, what's the yes. IOC gonna do? Take away my non existent Olympic credentials <laughs> like
0: Right. There's no risk right. in that way. Which is so freeing. Which is so freeing and uh I sports media is so access journalism in, in so many ways.
2: You know what was also special, at least for me, was you know, it was a place where I think you could like, even with those first blogs where I was just like, I don't know. They look like blogs to me, um, to the credit of, of deadspin, like how many places let you just say, looks like news to me and go, okay um yeah yeah really let people pursue what they wanted to pursue you know even if it was strange or different or weird you know or sad um in my case yeah I don't know like at its best I feel like it was about punching up and distrusting authority and um this is something that someone else said I'm gonna steal Where the ethos was the boss sucks (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah i think yeah. we last week we talked about uh fuck the bosses yeah it was like very, the yeah. dead was very you don't you don't want to be the boss you were like fuck the bosses okay but i do feel like one thing we are gonna lose of the many things that we will lose one thing will be the media watchdog yeah that you guys did that was so important because it really did push the media in a certain direction and, and it would be like the media watchdog stuff and then you would back that up by doing really good reporting, like you were doing, right? Yeah.
2: And it's funny because there's, of course, your ego or you're like, oh, I did that first. Yes. And yes. where's my credit? And, you know, where's my check for a million dollars? <laughs> I mean, for many reasons, where are all of our checks for a million dollars, I should say. Yeah. But um, yeah. the example, you know, that I gave was, you know, the recent news with what's going on with the NCAA, you know, like the number one draft picks potentially in the NBA and NFL drafts are now both facing <laughs> trouble from the NCAA for just, you know, the usual stupid reasons. And, you know, everyone's yelling and screaming and saying this is ridiculous and calling for death to the NCAA. And so I feel like this shows it worked, you know, that yeah. these ideas that started out on Deadspin seeming kind of weird and strange and nichey, are now mainstream I try to think about the difference it made because that to
0: me in a weird way like almost makes it feel immortal to me well let me ask one final question what is next for you
2: Oh my God, I have no idea. I have like not even right. answered all my emails yet. <laughs>
0: <Because> <laughs> really That's sorry to
2: people long. who have like emailed me <laughs> nice things because they normally really try to get back to people who write nice things. It's just has like not happened. And so
0: so first is answering email. Okay. Right.
2: So and first then... is like answering all these emails. But I don't know. I, I still like, I still think I've got a couple. Like, part of me still wants to be like, I still got this. I could still do reporting. And, but I don't. No. And I, and I, I certainly can't make a decision now because I like have not even decompressed and processed everything that has happened to me the last two weeks. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I have, I have like no idea. I'm like, my life goal right now is to like get through the holidays because I'm going home in a couple weeks for Thanksgiving. So I'm like figuring out.
0: (laughs) Any place that gets you, will be lucky to scoop you, scoop you up, Diana. Thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for all the work that you have done and we will all be watching to see where you land next. Oh,
2: thank you. And thank you to the whole crew. Burn it all down. I'm a Patreon. Have I mentioned that guys? You should be a Patreon.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. Shireen. tell us about the Matildas.
3: Would love to. So really happy Australia for those that have not heard. The Matildas are the Australian women's football team. That's their name. And they actually had negotiated with the Australian, the Football Federation of Australia, and they've agreed to equal pay. Now, they will be paid on the same scale. Okay, so that doesn't necessarily mean equal pay exactly, because the men will continue to earn more due to greater prize money typically in their tournaments so I think that's important to say they will not be getting equal amounts of money but they will be paid on the same scale so there's just that difference this is a huge thing and I think it's really it's positive in many ways because currently in the entire world there's only two other countries New Zealand and Norway that do place male and female players on the same pay scale and this is something that we know the US women's team is fighting for and that because of this activism and this type of, of you know, work that's being done by the athletes and the conversations that are happening. Now, this is not an easy thing. You would think that, you know, people like the rise of women's football, but I don't think necessarily it's this rise of women's football. I think women's football has always been there, but it was this suppression of it. So now, you know, the numbers were in over a billion people watch the Women's World Cup. We see this, there is a place for this. And in Australia, particularly, there's a huge amount of support of the Australian women's national team. And we see this, we see their, you know, their domestic league, one of their greatest players, Sam Kerr with the Chicago Red Stars, who were runners-up in the NWSL Championship, they lost to the North Carolina Courage, is very vocal about this. And I think that this is something that other countries and federations need to pay attention to and learn from. While, and, and I this bears repeating, they won't get equal amounts of money, but they have an opportunity now to earn more. And top female players of that country will see a huge boost in their actual paychecks. So it's something and I think this is in um, Australian dollars information I'm getting is from a BBC article on this is from anywhere from 53,000 to 69,000, like within that range, they can see a significant boost, which is about a hundred thousand Australian and that's that is significant it's a difference between some of these players having second jobs which is what a lot of professional players do and national level players so i mean this is this is ramifications on on many things and this is also outside of their opportunity to be sponsored or be sponsored from corporations that really want to have them as you know role models in the face of marketing and i think this is this is really this is a really good thing and i know y'all are thinking well wait a minute australia didn't do that great in the women's world cup no they didn't However, I mean, it was a transitional year for their team. Their coach was out. There was a lot of, you know, disaccord in the FFA. And I think the fact that the team is still pushing and is moving forward is a really positive thing. I am not a person that thinks that the results of a team should reflect what they're paid because if you don't invest in something, it cannot get better. This is a very simple thing to understand that if you don't invest
0: and in, So you say. You know, <laughs> yeah,
3: for me, it's a simple thing, but it's like. I'm glad that this is happening. It's uh, it, it shows pro- opportunity for progress for the women. And, you know, respect to all the women that came before them. Moya Dada has been very vocal. She's one of these people that's been advocating, not just in Australia, in the AFC, and to FIFA about the importance of this. So I'm so happy that this is coming back. And, you know, cheers to the Matildas.
0: Yeah, I think it's, I love all these stories. It's nice to have a nice thing to read about and you know australia is the same sort of story that we see anywhere i mean they the team went on a strike in 2015 uh like they've been advocating for themselves and loudly so and when they did that strike in 2015 it i think it was uh, usa they were going to do a friendly against the usa which was going to be a big deal and it had to be canceled because they were not going to participate uh and at the time they were advocating for equal pay. And it matters to me in sort of the larger cultural scale. There was a Guardian piece from August of 2019, so just a couple months ago, about how uh, the national gender pay gap in Australia is stable with 14 at 14%, with men making $241 more per week than women throughout the country, right? Uh, and so I know that the soccer team getting... More money doesn't mean that other women are necessarily getting more money, but just the fact that that they're leading in in their societies, and it, you know, we have so many parallels with here in the U.S. And we've talked on this program just over and over again about women around the world, especially you know in soccer. I keep thinking about the Chilean women that Brenda is always telling us about, and and the work that they're doing. The Nigerian women who continue to. <laughs> protest and sit in and in order to get their paychecks. And so we're just seeing it in so many places and it's thrilling. Lindsay, I think you were going to tell us a little bit more about the USA women and where they are in their equal pay fight.
1: Yeah. So good news this week, they got granted class action status, which is, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, you know, win the whole thing, but it does cite that the judge is, skeptically looking at some of U.S. soccer's (laughs) arguments, I believe uh, we can say, which is, you know, I would say the right way to approach (laughs) that (laughs) now that I am biased in any way. But yeah, I think that it's, you've had some significant developments this week. You've also had the U.S. men's national team rep come out and say that Basically, the women deserve more than the men in their CBA and just kind of blasting U.S. soccer for how they only care about money, that they don't care about soccer in this country. That's their number one priority. And it's been good to see the men's national team, I think, embracing this fight with the women. Of course, I think... A skeptical way to look at it would be that uh, the men are, are struggling so much right now that they might benefit more from an equal pay structure. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you're geez. not winning anything, you're not getting much money. Uh, yeah. you know, but <laughs> <laughs> that's just the cynic in Ouch. me. But. You know, I think it's not, we can get more in the weeds in the future as this fight continues. I think the court date is set for May for this to go to trial. So once again, you're going to have this, you know, as we lead into the Olympics, U.S. soccer society to just drag this out and, you know, force these women to continue to fight because they truly believe that, you know, this is the hill they're going to die on, that this is their high horse and they're not getting off, which is just a wonderful look. And, um, but, you know, to me, it's just like looking at what happens to the Matildas, looking at what we're, we're seeing in U.S. soccer, it just ties together for me what we talk about all the time, which is just women have to fight for literally everything. And the only way forward for women's sports is through collective action and solidarity. And I truly believe that. And I actually did. God, I'm going to plug power plays again. Sorry. Do but uh, this week. Do it. This week I, I looked back at – um the WTA, because the women's tennis had had this record $4.42 million payday for Ash Party after the WTA finals. And I looked at how, you know, they got from these $1 contracts to this, and it started with collective action, with solidarity, right? And and that's how their journey started. And I think what we're seeing now across, especially globally in soccer, and then in, um, you know, you're seeing some of in basketball as well, that this is, this is what people are embracing and it's creating change. Like, unfortunately women have to drag all of these power structures kicking and screaming into, you know, equality or anything resembling equality, but they're doing it and it's inspiring and congratulations Matildas and way to fight. Shireen?
3: Yeah, thanks. Just one quick thing. I wanted to draw attention to the writing of Samantha Lewis, who is a Guardian reporter in Australia about this. And there's something else. She wrote a really cool piece about the, how Indigenous women have actually really helped to, you know sort of draw attention to this I think this is really important we can talk about all these things but when we're talking specifically about Australia I think it's really key to note that these are communities that often get neglected in this and props to Samantha I love her work and I think that these are also the discussions and also ties back into what we're talking about in the previous segment the need for people to tell these stories and how important they are and one of the other things that we have to keep in mind is Australia is part of the Asian Football Confederation, which has, you know, we know that misogyny in football is literally a global problem, but doesn't have as active uh, federations supporting women's teams. So the fact that they're doing this under that umbrella is really, really key. And I hope we'll draw attention and start shaking up because, as Lindsay was saying, collective. You know, action is really important, but we're also talking about some places in the world where that's not necessarily as possible or plausible for some of the the countries. And I think that that's why, for me, the Matildas doing this and the Socceroos. I mean, I haven't seen a lot about the Socceroos, who are the uh, the men's team, saying anything about it yet. But maybe I have been looking in the wrong places. But
1: I want. They have been supportive as far as well yes, yeah, they but there's been, been nothing like
3: yeah. outspoken to a degree of like, you know, like a huge rally. And 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 in this, we also see the importance of allies. We need that. I mean, I don't think anyone's objective, but I haven't seen this outpouring. I haven't seen it anyway. But and and rightfully so of writers not to focus on that. But just sort of talking about this, I think, is is really key of where they are geographically located and just the whole story. And we really need to 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 look at that picture of what this means for women's football in Australia and moving forward and how they will inspire others.
0: Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment that we like to call the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. I'm going to go first this past week, Kenny Jacoby, whose work I've used before to burn things on the burn pile, published a piece at Gatehouse Media about Youngstown State University. Kenny uncovered that Youngstown in 2016 found three male athletes responsible for sexual assault, suspending them all for different amounts of time, I think, expelling one of them. One of those athletes was Bassem L. McAwee. The school found that in El McAwee's apartment, he had sexually assaulted a fellow student by non-consensually fondling her. He was suspended from the school for seven months and had to complete an online training module called Think About It, which was supposed to educate him about alcohol use, healthy relationships, and consent, according to Jacoby's reporting. After his suspension was over, El McCauley reapplied to YSU, he was accepted, and he played on the school's tennis team from 2017 to 2018, competing in 35 matches. And then he got a gig as an unpaid assistant coach of the men's tennis team in fall of 2018, and then... And this is the part where you just have to wonder how this even happens and why. In the spring of 2019, he became an assistant coach on the women's tennis team. In response to Jacoby's reporting, YSU started scrubbing any mention of El Makawi's association with the women's team off the internet, which I've seen this before at other universities. Gatehouse has the screenshots, though, it's, you know, we'll be linking to this so you can go see, and a spokesperson for the school felt it was necessary to point out that there is only the one instance of sexual assault. For the record, Hill graduated this year and, according to the university, is no longer affiliated with the school. In the end, YSU responded to the reporting by saying, quote, The university is reviewing the need to develop additional processes to ensure that the campus activities of students readmitted to the university are appropriate, given the nature of their code violation that is such interesting wording, isn't it? Reviewing the need to develop. So there is a space for second chances. And we as a society do have to figure out how we move forward after someone is found responsible for harming someone else. But those decisions have to be thoughtful and deliberate and made with great care and nothing about why what YSU did here in regards to El Covey's position as an assistant coach meets even that basic standard. There was, I thought, one silver lining in all of this in the original piece that Kenny wrote. This line was included, quote, Gatehouse Media obtained the information while researching the broader issue of NCAA athletes continuing their playing careers after being investigated and found responsible for sexual assault. I am looking forward to what he uncovers and what patterns he finds, but I also know that that means that there's a good chance that Kenny's work will fuel this burn pile again in the future. For now, I just want to burn everything that went down at Youngstown State, so... Burn. 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 All right, Shereen, what are you torching today? I am so mad.
3: I am so mad. I was mad earlier because of what happened with Mario Balotelli in Verona and everything about City, uh, which we know is garbage. And I was mad about a woman attending the Denver Nuggets game and then being harassed by a Pepsi Center employee. Anyway, there was a lot of stuff for me to be mad about. But this morning, when I woke up... (laughs) Don fucking Cherry of Hockey Night in Canada went on an anti-immigrant rant. He has a segment called Coach's Corner and he talks about it. His sidekick is Ron McLean, who basically enabled this horrible xenophobic rant. And he was talking about Remembrance Day. This weekend is Remembrance Day. There's there's celebrations and remembrance ceremonies all over the country. Now, Remembrance Day is to honor the vets and those in World War One and World War II who gave their lives and, and, and those who are currently serving. I actually do not wear a poppy. I do not wear a poppy, but if I ever choose to wear a poppy, it will be a beaded poppy to recognize indigenous vets and how they were literally tossed aside, not allowed to vote after they came back from service and literally were given no social supports or economic supports. So that is another thing. Don Cherry specifically said this, you people love our way of life, love our milk and honey. At least you could pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. These guys paid for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. So As he said this, Ron McLean just nodded and gave a thumbs up to him. Now, let me explain something, Don Cherry. We're all settlers on stolen land, which is Turtle Island, but you didn't pay for anyone's fucking way. Like, do you understand how the military industrial complex works? I'm so mad about this. I cannot even tell you. I've been ranting since 6 a.m. on Twitter Sunday morning. Thank God for Kawhi Leonard saying nice things about Toronto to calm me down. Now... I just this is not acceptable. So I've decided that I'm going to start a hashtag support the hashtag fire Don Cherry because I don't want Boomer Night in Canada to be my hockey commentary, which is exactly what's happening. I have no time for this. He's literally taking pieces away from people who have a right to enjoy the sport and going on to say it's not political. Wearing a poppy is a political. If I choose to support young kids that are in you know in, in air cadets or whatever, they stand at the grocery stores and I'll put money in their tins because I support them. The bodies of black and brown people were used in the front lines of these wars and they were given no support, and which is why I refuse to be performative in my support of those vets who do, and I have unlearned so much about how I felt about this, when somebody I know came to me over a Facebook group and said, Shireen, your stance on being anti-war is so classist because I had to get out of abject poverty by enlisting in the US military or my family would starve. So please understand, I I will never forget that conversation and it changed the way that I look at myself and how I look at how these words are being played out by rich white powerful men who use these bodies in the front line so fuck you Don Cherry stay out of hockey for me and don't tell me not to politicize something ever again
0: burn 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 Ooh. you sounded like your Canadian accent really came out there <laughs> Lindsay what are you burning this week
1: I just like can I just take a minute like I literally never ever hear about Don Cherry until he's on the burn. Pile. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. Like, like what is how he? What is does this he man add? Like to anything? Still? Oh. Also, I learned about poppies, which I really didn't know anything about. So, you know, lots of lots of lessons today. But uh, I'm going to burn. I know this is going to shock people. Hold hold on. You know, hopefully you're sitting down. I'm going to burn the NCAA. <laughs> so. This week in what I like to call a Friday evening news dump for the ages, (laughs) just for the ages, within a couple of hours, the NCAA announced that both the potential number one draft pick in the 2020 NFL draft, Chase Young, and the projected number one pick in the 2020 NBA draft, James Wiseman, were both being suspended (laughs) and being ruled ineligible. So Wiseman, for Memphis, basketball player at Memphis, apparently Penny Hardaway, before he was the coach of the team, there is a loan to help his family relocate to Memphis once again before he was a coach, and then so he's he's in danger of being ruled ineligible for the entire year, and then you have Chase Young, a defensive a star defensive end at OSU, who is dealing with a four game uh, suspension for accepting a loan for a family friend, a loan that has been completely paid back already that he used just to fly his girlfriend into the Rose Bowl. So again, let's I don't know the numbers in front of you. I'm sure the Rose Bowl made the NCAA quite a lot of money. <laughs> so we're, we've also had a lot of questionable, at best, transfer decisions for the NCAA, which means like when players transfer between schools, they... Um, are ruling that they're ineligible to play immediately because they're not of arbitrary reasons that make no sense. And just all of this is just, the NCAA does not care about athletes. It cares about controlling athletes at all costs. And that's what this is all about. And especially right now, as there's talk about, Figuring out some sort of model where, you know, they're trying to pretend like they're being progressive a little bit and trying, you know, and thinking of compensation models or ways for these um, athletes to benefit from their likeness. I just didn't think that there was anything coincidental about the fact that right after that became public, which, of course, as we've dissected, was not all that that statement was uh, said to be but that they are now bringing down the hammer on some of the most prominent athletes in the NCAA. And um, this is a fledgling organization that is terrified about the power that it is losing. And it is uh, taking innocent young people (laughs) down with it. And, Someone in Twitter replied to me or was on a thread. They said, "So wait, now we're just getting mad at the NCAA for enforcing rules?" And my answer is yes, one hundred percent. What we are doing, because as we say, these rules do not deserve an ounce of respect. So burn,
0: burn, 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 burn. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First up, our honorable mentions. Cheers to NWSL players as the league owners have approved an additional $300,000 per team to pay top-end players more than the new maximum salary of $50,000. This appeared to be a rule put in place to keep talent like Sam Kerr in the States. It didn't work out in Kerr's case, but it's great whenever salaries go up for players. One more shout-out to the Matildas, Australia women's soccer team, on their equal pay. More good news from down under, as 236,000 cricket fans in Australia watched Elise Perry and Alyssa Healy on TV as they recorded a 199-run stand with the Sydney Sixers against the Melbourne Stars. Ratings are up 25% this year. That's a huge amount of people supporting women's cricket, and we are here for it. And speaking of big crowds for women's sport, close to 78,000 people showed up over the weekend to watch England's Lionesses, their women's national soccer team, take on Germany at Wembley Stadium. This set a record for attendance, crushing the previous one in 2014 when just over 45,000 showed up to Wembley for the same matchup. That's a 30,000 plus increase in five years time. Canadian soccer legend Christine Sinclair, Shireen's Prime Minister, (laughs) is one goal away from matching Abby Wambach's record of 184 international goals after scoring in a friendly against New Zealand this weekend. Sinclair will have a chance to beat this record at the end of January with the Canadian women's national team during Olympic qualifying at the CONCACAF tournament. And on the other side of the age roster, Canadian soccer player Olivia Smith is the youngest player to ever make the national women's roster. Smith is 15 and made her debut at the Four Nations Tournament in China last week. Shout out to Aya Katab, a defender with the Palestinian women's football team who wrote a poignant piece for Al Jazeera about the Puma boycott. And congratulations to France, who defeated Australia in the Fed Cup, that's in tennis, 3-2. to two. Can I get a drumroll, please? our badass women of the week are the oregon women's basketball team led by yes. sabrina Inuescu, who had 30 points wow. they beat the usa women's national team on saturday night the number one ranked ducks beat team usa 93 to 86 becoming only the second college team ever to beat team usa and the first since 1999 a full 20 years ago it's going to be a fun basketball season okay let's talk about what is good in our world i'm gonna start and it's like it's so simple for me this week i have been enjoying a bbc show that we watch over here on the side of the pond on pbs it's called Grantchester, and i'm just gonna describe it um (laughs) it takes place in post-world war ii britain mainly in cambridge and it follows a vicar and i know that hot priest is out there in fleabag but like this is the hottest vicar, and he's played by this game this game. this guy named James Norton, and he's hot in the way that like he has demons and he drinks and he has sex and he goes dancing, he listens to jazz uh but the premise is that this very hot vicar uh teams up with a detective and they solve murders together. So, of course, and it's lovely and I love it and it has made me very happy this week. So, Shireen, what is good in your world?
3: My daughter is going to semifinals of ROPSA, which is the regional uh, semifinals, and I'm really excited for it. It's tomorrow. I'm going to go, and I know this is shocking, going to be loud in the stands. Um gonna make a sign by the time this episode airs, I mean she would the result would have already been out, but I'm really hoping for that, you know, for them to go forward. She's in her senior year in high school, so this would be a really big deal. I'm going to Kingston, Ontario this week, to Queen's University to do a panel called Muslim femininities in sport, which is being organised by Courtney Sito, who's been on our show. I'm going to be speaking with Sarah Abood, who has started a modest sportswear line, and that you know features really cool turbans and hijabs and with my friend amina Mohammed, and so i'm really excited about that i have some other trips coming up i'm gonna see brenda next month early next month in princeton which is really exciting and oh,
0: listen look at you guys is,
3: yeah and then i'm going to go to pakistan which is not something i've done for five years i need to see my family and i'm really 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 excited about that so that's that plan is just coming into play and of course as you know Sunny bill williams is coming to toronto to the toronto wolf pack wolf for rugby so
0: shireen is very excited i literally know that's happening because of your twitter again. <laughs> <laughs> like how i understand I, the context of that my favorite thing
1: my what's good is when shireen goes third person <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's
0: yes. how you know
1: it's a big deal.
0: <laughs> uh, what else is good in your world, Lindsay, other than that? Other than that, well, okay, so
1: today is Sunday, and I am about to go see my first women's college basketball game mm-hmm. of the oh, year.
0: Yay. Um,
1: Maryland versus South Carolina. Wow. Oh my I, gosh. I know. So I'm so excited for that. And yeah. Uh, newsletter continues to chug along week two is slightly less uh, anxiety inducing than week one. So looking forward to week three, I'm actually going another what's good is I'm doing a quick 24 hour jaunt to New York city for the athlete ally action awards. So I will be covering that. And there's going to be a lot of inspirational people honored for their work in the LGBTQ community in athletics and in- including Ashlyn Harris and Ally Krieger who will be so I'm trying to get a few minutes with them. I'll keep you posted. Um but yeah, I'm super excited and you know, one of the most fun things about now being completely self-employed is that you know, I get to kind of be more flexible about taking these trips and making it more of a priority to get to these events and get to more women's sporting events that is if You know, this all works out financially, but I'm just so excited that I can, you know, do things like this on a, you know, kind of a last minute basis, as opposed to being, you know, glued to my computer waiting for the next Trump tweet. So yeah,
0: I'm excited. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For more information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you all. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor and share it with two people in your life whom you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. One more thank you to our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor, at, to burn it all down at patreon.com slash burn it all down that's patreo ncom com slash burn it all down catch my full interview with diana moskovitz on our patreon in a few days that's it for burn it all down until next week burn on not out I'm going to do that drum roll again, everybody. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I thought Lindsay wanted (laughs) me to solo
3: and be like Phil Collins out here, but that's fine.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay, stop. Stop. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Sure, you get a Phil Collins reference? Okay.